0: Section 15 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 8 of A Visit to the Holy Land: Egypt and Italy, Part 1, by Ida L. Pfeiffer. On the 2nd of June, I rode in the company of Counts Bergthold and Salem Reiferscheid and Potter Paul to Bethlehem. Although, on account of the bad roads, we were obliged to ride nearly the whole distance at a foot-pace, it does not take more than an hour and a half to accomplish the journey. The view we enjoy during this excursion is as grand as it is peculiar. So far as the eye can reach, it rests upon stone, the ground is entirely composed of stones, and yet between the rocky interstices grow fruit-trees of all kinds, and grapevines trail along, besides fields whose productions force their way upwards from the shingly soil. I had already wondered, when I saw the Karst, near Trieste, and the desert region of Gors, but these sink into insignificance when compared to the scenery of the Judean mountains. It is difficult to conceive how these regions can ever have been smiling and fertile. Doubtless they have appeared to better advantage than at the present period, when the poor inhabitants are ground to the bone by their pashas and officers. But I do not think that meadows and woods can ever have existed here to any extent. On the way we pass a well, surrounded by blocks of stone. At this well the wise men from the east rested, and here the guiding star appeared to them. Midway between Jerusalem and Bethlehem lies the Greek convent dedicated to the prophet Elijah. From hence we can see both towns, on the one hand the spacious jerusalem and on the other the humble bethlehem with some small villages scattered round it on the right we pass rachel's grave a ruined building with a small cupola bethlehem lies on a hill surrounded by several others with the exception of the convent it contains not a single handsome building the inhabitants half of whom are catholics muster about twenty-five hundred strong Many live in grottos and semi-subterranean domiciles, cutting out garlands and other devices in mother-of-pearl, etc. The number of houses does not exceed a hundred at the most, and the poverty here seems excessive, for nowhere have I been so much pestered with beggar-children as in this town. Hardly has the stranger reached the convent gates before these urchins are seen rapidly approaching from all quarters. One rushes forward to hold the horse, while a second grasps the stirrup, a third and a fourth present their arm to help you dismount, and in the end the whole swarm unanimously stretch forth their hands for Bakshish. In cases like these it is quite necessary to come furnished either with a multiplicity of small coins, or with a riding-whip, in order to be delivered in one way or another from the horrible importunity of the diminutive mob. It is very fortunate that the horses are perfectly accustomed to such scenes. Were this not the case, they would take fright and gallop headlong away. The little convent and church are both situated near the town, and are built on the spot where the Saviour was born. The whole is surrounded by a strong fortress-wall, a very low, narrow gate forming the entrance. In front of this fortress extends a handsome, well-paved area. So soon as we have passed through the little gate, we find ourselves in the courtyard, or rather in the nave of the church, which is unfortunately more than half destroyed, but must once have been eminent both for its size and beauty. Some traces of mosaic can still be detected on the walls. Two rows of high, handsome pillars, forty-eight in number, intersect the interior, and the beam-work, said to be of cedar-wood from Lebanon, looks almost new. Beneath the high altar of this great church is the grotto in which Christ was born. Two staircases lead downwards to it, one of the staircases belongs to the armenians the other to the greeks the catholics have none at all both the walls and the floor are covered with marble slabs a marble tablet with the inscription hic divergen maria Jesu christus natus est marks the spot whence the true light shone abroad over the world A figure of a beaming sun, which receives its light from numerous lamps kept continually burning, is placed in the background of this tablet. The spot where our Saviour was shown to the worshipping Magi is but a few paces distant. An altar is erected opposite, on the place where the manger stood in which the shepherds found our Lord. The manger itself is deposited in the Basilica Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome. This altar belongs to the Roman Catholics. A little door, quite in the background of the grotto, leads to a subterranean passage, communicating with the convent and the Catholic chapel. In this passage another altar has been erected to the memory of the innocents slaughtered and buried here. Proceeding along the passage we come upon the grave of St. Paula and her daughter Eustatia on one side, and that of St. Hieronymus on the other. The body of the latter is, however, deposited at Rome. Like the church of the Holy Sepulchre at Jerusalem, this great church at Bethlehem belongs at once to the Catholics, the Armenians, and the Greeks. Each of these sects has built for itself a little convent adjoining the church. After spending at least a couple of hours here, we rode two miles farther towards Mount Hebron. At the foot of this mountain we turn off to the left towards the three cisterns of Solomon. These reservoirs are very wide and deep, hewn out of the rock and still partially covered with a kind of cement, resembling marble in its consistency and polish. We descended into the third of these cisterns. It was about five hundred paces long, four hundred broad, and a hundred deep. Not one of these cisterns now contains water. The aqueducts which once communicated with them have entirely vanished. A single rivulet, across which one may easily step, flows beside these giant reservoirs. The region all around is barren in the extreme. On returning to our convent, at about two o'clock, to partake of our frugal but welcome meal, we were surprised to find that another party of travellers, Franks like ourselves, had arrived. The newcomers proved to be Count Zichy and Count Vratislav, who had travelled from Vienna to Cairo in company with Counts Berchtold and Salom Reiferscheidt. At the last mentioned place the voyagers parted company, one party proceeding to Jerusalem by way of Alexandria, Damietta, and Joppa, while the other bent their course across the burning sands of Africa towards Mount Sinai, and thence continued their journey to Jerusalem by land. Here, at length, they had the pleasure of meeting once more. A great and general rejoicing, in which we all joined, was the consequence of this event. After dinner we once more visited all the holy places in company of the newcomers. We afterwards went to the so-called Milk Grotto, distant about half a mile from the convent. In this grotto there is nothing to be seen but a simple altar, before which lights are continually burning. It is not locked, and every passer-by is at liberty to enter. The place is held sacred not only by the Christians, but also by the Turks, who bring many a cruse of oil to fill the lamps after they have cleaned them. In this grotto the holy family concealed themselves before the flight into Egypt, and the Virgin for a long time nourished the infant Jesus with her milk, from which circumstance the grotto derives its name. The women in the neighborhood believe that if they feel unwell during the time they are nursing their children, they have merely to scrape some of the sand from the rocks in this grotto, and to take it as a powder, to regain their health. Half a mile from this grotto we were shown the field in which the angel appeared to announce the birth of the Redeemer to the shepherds. But our newly-arrived friends were not able to visit this spot. They were fain to content themselves with a distant view, as it was high time to think of our return. St. John's On the fourth of June I rode out, accompanied by a guide to the birthplace of St. John the Baptist distant about four miles from jerusalem the way to this convent lies through the bethlehem gate opposite the convent of the holy cross a building supposed to stand on the site where the wood was felled for our saviour's cross not far off the place was pointed out to me where a battle was fought between the israelites and the philistines and where david slew goliath situated in a rocky valley the convent of st john's is like all the monasteries in these lands, surrounded by very strong walls. The church of the convent is erected on the spot where the house of Zacharias once stood, and a chapel commemorates the place where St. John first beheld the light. The ascent to this chapel is by a staircase, where a round tablet of stone bears the inscription Hic Precursor Domini Christi Natus Est. Many events of the prophet's life are here portrayed by sculptures in white marble. About a mile from the convent we find the Grotto of Visitation, where St. Mary met St. Elizabeth. The remains of the latter are interred here. On the very first day of my arrival at Jerusalem I had made some observations, during a visit to the Church of St. Francis, which gave me anything but a high opinion of the behavior of the Catholics here. This unfavorable impression was confirmed by subsequent visits to this church, so that at length I felt obliged to tell Father Paul that I would rather pray at home than among people who seemed to attend to anything rather than their devotions. My Frankish costume seemed to be such a stumbling-block in the eyes of these people, that at length the priest came to me and requested that I would make an alteration in my dress, or at any rate exchange my straw hat for a veil, in which I could muffle my head and face. I promised to discard the obnoxious hat, and to wear a handkerchief round my head when I attended church, but refused to muffle my face, and begged the reverend gentleman to inform my fellow-worshippers that this was the first time such a thing had been required of a Frankish woman, and that I thought they would be more profitably employed in looking at their prayer-books than at me, for that he whom we go to church to adore is not a respecter of outward things. In spite of this remonstrance, their behavior remained the same, so that I was compelled almost to discontinue attending public worship. On great festival days the high altar of the Church of St. Francis is very profusely decorated. It is, in fact, almost overloaded with ornament, and sparkles and glitters with the most dazzling brilliancy. Innumerable candles display the luster of gold and precious stones. Foremost among the costly ornaments appear a huge gold monstrance, presented by the King of Naples, and two splendid candelabra, a gift of the imperial house of Austria. I happened one day to pass a house, from within which a great screaming was to be heard. On inquiring of my companion what was the matter, I was informed that some person had died in that house the day before, and that the sound I heard was the wail of the mourning women. I requested admission to the room where the deceased lay. Had it not been for the circumstance that a few pictures of saints and a crucifix decorated the walls, I could never have imagined that the dead man was a Catholic. Several mourning women sat near the corpse, uttering every now and then such frantic yells that the neighborhood rang with their din. In the intervals between these demonstrations they sat comfortably regaling themselves with coffee. After a little time they would again raise their horrible cry. I had seen enough to feel excessively disgusted, and so went away. I was also fortunate enough to visit a newly married pair. The bride was gorgeously dressed in a silk undergarment, wide trousers of peach-blossom satin, and a caftan of the same material. A rich shawl encircled her waist, and on her feet she wore boots of yellow morocco leather. The slippers had been left, according to the Turkish fashion, at the entrance of the chamber an ornamental headdress of rich gold brocade and fresh flowers completed the bride's attire her hair arranged in a number of thin plates and decorated with coins fell down upon her shoulders and on her neck glittered several rows of ducats and larger gold pieces costumes of this kind are only seen in the family circle and on the occasion of some great event seldom or never are strange men allowed to behold the ladies in their gorgeous apparel so that it is fruitless to expect to see picturesque female costumes in the public places of the East. After the marriage ceremony, which is always performed during the forenoon, the young wife is compelled to sit for the remainder of the day in a corner of the room, with her face turned towards the wall. She is not allowed to answer any question put by her husband, her parents, or by any one whatever, still less is she permitted to offer a remark herself." This silence is intended to typify the bride's sorrow at changing her condition. During my visit the bridegroom sat next to his bride, vainly endeavouring to lure a few words from her. On my rising to depart, the young wife inclined her head towards me, but without raising her eyes from the ground. End of section 15.